Hey guys, so I am an American living in Japan since 2011. I used to teach public school and now I teach at a university. Since I've been living in Japan, and of course I'm a woman living by myself, I get a lot of like cautionary tales from coworkers, sometimes well meaning. You know, people of an older generation are a little bit more superstitious, I think. It's really interesting. Like, I've been scolded to not whistle at night because that'll bring snakes or, you know, be cautious of who I talk to on the streets at night. One of the big urban myths around here is something called the Kuchisake Ona, the split mouth or slit mouth woman, that you'll be out. You know, either as a beautiful woman yourself or like little kids will see this disheveled woman and she'll come up to you and, and you, you know, you'll be really startled by her appearance and she'll ask, Do you think I'm beautiful? If you say no, she'll cut you in half. If you say yes, she'll take off her mask to reveal this horribly split face. Now, how this happened to this woman, either it was domestic violence or. She was hit by a car. The, the legend around here varies. But then you see the, the real face under the mask, and she'll ask again, Do you think I'm beautiful? And at this point, if you say yes, she'll slit your face like her face. And if you say no, she'll still like cut you in half. I think it's really interesting, this story, because. A lot of people believe it's real. Supposedly, there was a woman in Nagasaki in the 1970s who was an escaped mental patient, but we know how those stories are. So, if you're walking alone anywhere in urban Japan, if a beautiful, ghostly, disheveled woman walks up to you and asks, Am I beautiful? I suggest you give an ambiguous answer. Like so so, or you flip the question on her and ask, Well, do you think I'm pretty? to give yourself time to escape. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of. And written on the wall. And everyone blood. has the different stories of, Oh, this happened to my brother. This is her telling you stories of the old. Family. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. And welcome back for another week. Another week. We hope that everyone is having a fabulous week. We are so happy you're all back. You're still the prettiest listeners I know. You're all lovely. Each and every one of you, especially you, especially you. Yeah, you know who you are. Are they wearing a mask? No, they're not. Good. <laughs> we want to thank all of you listeners for rating and reviewing our show. We've had tons of new ratings and reviews and comments, and we always appreciate those. We've also had people reaching out to us on Twitter and you can do that by going to at just a story pod and go through all our different social media outlets. Which we now have Facebook and Instagram and carrier pigeons. Um Um what? I ate those. Oh. I knew that gumbo was too good to be true. Sorry. You ate it too. I know. I guess I did. Oh well. 
So the carrier pigeons are not happening. We might talk to some people about getting some African swallows, but don't send things by coconut. We also have our website, justastorypod.com. And on there you can stream the show, you can leave comments, or you can check out some of our sources for the different episodes so you can find out more and more and more information about whatever topic it is. Yes, we have created a rabbit hole catalog for you. And also, speaking of catalogs, you can get to our merch through our website. We have t-shirts and various and sundry products available featuring a new logo I've designed especially for merchandise. So go check that out. And on the site, you'll also find a link to our Patreon. And we have had a huge success with our first month or so of Patreonage. Is that... what? It's a new word. Okay. All right. I'll deal with that. We have really been incredibly pleasantly surprised by the response we've gotten from all of y'all on Patreon. And we do want to thank some of these new patrons, including Juliana Alonzo, Ronnie, and Rebecca Hopkins. And so they will get access to all of our mini-cast episodes, which will have a new one up this week. Very exciting, very exciting. This one is going to be about evil woman. It's going to be about cults. And evil women and things. Since we've had such an overwhelming response on Patreon, we put out a level called All the Freuds. And we were not sure that anyone was going to take us up on the Freudian offer. But you know what? You slipped right in there and did that. We've had an overwhelming response. So we're going to have to put a limit on it. And in the spirit of continuing success, we are going to restructure, change some rewards around, and introduce some new reward levels. Yeah, such as some online meetups we'll be doing. So please go check that out and see if there is a Patreon level that is right for you. You know, and if you just want to keep listening and being a beautiful audience, you can do that too. One other way to reach out to us and be a part of the show is to call the Urban Legend Hotline. And we want to thank everyone that's called in on there so far. And if you would like to call and leave us a tale on our voicemail, you may call 512-222-222. Three three seven five, and it cuts you off after three minutes. But call back as many times as you need to. We will listen to every word. So back to the stories at hand. This week's story is a listener suggestion. It is. We got an email a while back saying, "Hey, Japan's got some cool urban legends," and we're like, "Girl, we know." And we fell down that rabbit hole hard and fast, and have really enjoyed researching this week's specific topic that's right so kind of everybody knows that japan just has these just interesting urban legends and these have really been brought about by the popularity of like the j-horror films with that inspiration still being there of course but this particular story is the kuchisake ona story or the slit-mouthed woman. Now, she is an interesting, interesting figure because she's not necessarily folklore. She's not an invention of popular culture. She doesn't fit in within the larger schema of folk myth and rumor that exist in Japan. She kind of spontaneously generated. Well, I'm going to back you up there just one second. Because remember, all of these urban legends are folklore. They're just modern folklore. So she's not part of that ancient tradition. Right. She first appeared at the end of 1978. Okay. 
and she spread very, very rapidly. So, as our listener said, you know, she usually appears as this beautiful woman, young woman, that's wearing a white surgical mask over her face. And that's not necessarily a tip-off that there's anything peculiar about her, correct? Right, because in Japan, people wear it like if they have a cold or if they're trying to avoid pollution or allergens or things like that. They'll just wear them commonly on the street. Right, so it wouldn't be that odd to see that. So where if I saw someone walking down South Congress on that, I might think that was a little odd. Right. So under this mask, she's hiding a secret. A secret, you say? So let's say you are a school kid and you are coming home from school Mm -hmm. and a young woman Mm -hmm. wearing a surgical mask stops you and leans in and says, do you think I'm pretty? And Southern politeness kicks in and I say, yes, (laughs) ma'am. You're lovely. Let go of my arm. So if you were to do that, she would remove her mask, revealing her slit open mouth very like glasgow smile okay like heath ledger joker exactly would she uh, would there be follow-up questions or would she just be like look at it well she would say how about now and being southern and polite i'd say yes ma'am and then she would give you a glasgow smile no i was being so nice to her okay so if i'm like Oh, gross. No, I'm better off in some twisted, ironic way. Then she'd, like, stab you, or she'd cut you in half. Okay, yeah. Or if you ran away, she'd chase after you. Okay, so split the difference. I'm like, meh. If I say meh, what happens if I say meh? Well, that might be one way you can get out of it. Apathy? Yes. (laughs) The answer to everything. Meh. So if you do do that, you may be able to kind of confuse her long enough to where you can get away. And now, of course, you could always say no with the first question. And then you're fine. No, then she just cuts you in half or stab you or something. But do you get to see the smile then? No. No. So no payoff. So she's a supernatural entity of some sort. Are there any other trick diffusions, like the thing that counts the broom fibers or whatever? Well, there are. So there are lots of things. Some legends say you can give her hard candy. Another is that you can run into a record shop. Not a music fan. And another is that you can say the word pomade. Why pomade? She doesn't like the smell of pomade. I'm a Dapper Dan man myself. Yeah. So you'd be screwed. (laughs) The interesting thing is that in Japan, as phrases do here too, you know, even saying this phrase is like, do you think I'm pretty, has kind of that eerie feel to it. Like you might say it kind of jokingly in reference to this. So it's like a catchphrase. Yeah. Okay. So with this spreading rapidly, the first writing on it is in December of 1978 in the Gifu Prefecture, but by June of 1979, it was Everywhere in Japan. Okay. Literally everywhere. A survey of kids at the time showed that 99% of children were aware of her. Wow. I actually read somewhere that they were interviewing people, school kids, about this. And one girl said, like, if you don't talk about the slip mouth woman, if you don't know about the slip mouth woman, it's like you're not a part of things. Right. It cues you in. Everybody knows that. And so at the time, 
it was in all the papers, all the media. There were late night specials on it, all the news reports. You would even have extra police patrols around, people walking kids home in the evening. It's like the creepy clown. Yeah, it really is. Teachers would even warn kids not to approach women wearing white surgical masks. (laughs) It's funny that the mask survived this. Oh, you mean that people are still wearing it? Yeah. Yeah, I know. So, as great urban legends do, we have this story taking on many different forms as it's being told and retold and retold and moving to different places. Of course, it always happens in your local block, but it always happens at dusk. Mm -hmm. There are lots of stories of who this person was or is. Some say, since she could run very fast and chase after you, that she was a previous Olympic athlete. Obviously, there's one of those everywhere. Japan's not that big. It's right. (laughs) One story says that she had had cosmetic surgery done, and they botched it. That's a pretty severe whoops! Like the worst doctor ever. And she ended up with a slit open mouth. Now, another version says that she was one of three sisters. Mm-hmm. And the first sister had the cosmetic surgery and had a slit mouth. The second sister got in a car wreck and from the wreck had a slit mouth. And the third sister, from seeing these two terrible incidents occur, went insane and slit her own mouth. (laughs) You'd have to be pretty crazy, but okay. And of course, she's recently escaped from the mental institution. Okay, so in these stories, she's like a living human person. Right, it can kind of take on many roles, many different forms. Another story was that she is kind of more of an ancient being, Mm -hmm. and that she was the wife of a samurai who okay. was abusive and did this to her and eventually killed her. I like that story, but it does make me question where she got the surgical mask. Walgreens. There's one on every corner. So the fury over this story, you know, it died down after a few months. But even though they aren't patrolling the streets for her anymore, it is still around. The urban legend has stuck around as we're talking about it now. It's all over the internet. There is even a series of movies about her. Okay. And she's mentioned in Ringu. Okay, so that is the Japanese version of the ring, correct? Right. And in a lot of the urban legends, she has like a scythe or a knife. And then more recently, she has a big pair of like shears or scissors. So do people claim to have seen her? My friends are. Okay. Okay. My friend was walking home the other day and saw her. Okay. Got it. You don't believe me? I totally believe you. Do you think I'm pretty? Uh, Talk about a loaded question. So, no, really. Do you think I'm pretty? Pomade. (laughs) Do you want some candy? I do. I do. I want a cough drop. Sorry, guys. So, there is a realistic fear embedded in this kind of fanciful legend. You know, this is stranger abduction or, you know, strangers harassing your children when you send them out into the world alone, which is scary. And I think that there's definitely some basis in reality in that fear right that idea that anyone can be a threat that other person lurking around the corner right and i mean you have to remember that in america especially we just seen you know the rise of the serial killer that is as far as documentation and media coverage goes but this cultural awareness that these men who led very normal lives seemingly who were going around Killing people all over the place, just all willy-nilly. Then you also see the rise of, and we talked about 
previously the slasher flicks and exploitation films. So it's very much in that cultural mind. And then you have parents who are dealing with kind of one of the first generations of children who are growing up in the urban environment. Right. At this time, Japan was going through a big change, big urbanization. And, you know, people had moved in the cities. People had been growing up in the cities. People had less connection to their pastoral ancestral roots than ever before in the country. And so there was an active campaign to try and connect people with that idea of the agrarian society, with their ancestral heritage. People were encouraged to go out and visit the countryside, get back to that more idyllic, nostalgic ideal. And the weapon of the scythe that was originally associated with the slipmouth woman has ties to that pastoral agrarian tradition. And so it's interesting that that imagery was combined in this way. Yeah, they're, they're trying to push back to these old ideas, including these old like folk tales and traditions. Mm-hmm. And another idea about where this particular incarnation of a threat may have come from was this, I don't like this phrase, education mama. The mother? <laughs> Zimuzer. It's all the mother's fault. We're going to be doing a lot of zimuzering today. But education mama was this kind of cultural idea that was tapped into by media and commentators at the time that sort of articulated the prevalence of these super like, aggress- hel- like, like helicopter parents almost. Yeah, like aggressive, aggressively proactive parents who are focused on education. Like there's one passage in an article I read that was like, they would do everything from sharpen pencils to make midnight snacks. They would talk to the teachers. They knew all the kids' assignments before they got them. They were sending them to extra after hours cram schools. Academia had just become really competitive and parents were taking a lot of the responsibility for children's education onto themselves really pushing their kids. And so people speculate that Slipmouth Woman, who confronts children coming home from school... Late night. Right. Like, she doesn't get the kids who get out at 3 o'clock. She's getting the ones that are coming home at dusk, who have been at extra educational enrichment activities. She may represent sort of an externalized anxiety about their mother's demands. Yeah, so that overbearing mother leading to just this nervousness and anxiety and just projecting that onto this being, this creature, right? This monster. She goes from being like the nurturing mother with mask on, like making herself vulnerable to the child to being this horrifying mother who threatens to harm them or push them beyond their natural limits and puts them in a position where there is no correct answer. The mother is panoptic. So she sees all. Right. Like Santa. And inescapable. There's also a lot of writing on the idea that she might be a personification for sort of environmental illness. So the mask. Right. So she's created a barrier between herself and society. And people continue on and ignore the problems that urbanization has created for the environment. However, behind their mask, which pretends that everything is okay there are actually a lot of problems and illnesses being caused by pollution. And so the thought is that she's revealing the damage that's being done to the environment and to the people who are forced to interact with this environment by removing her mask. 
Right, and even if you go to like a really literal idea, the mask was worn to protect against pollution. Correct. Environmental factors. Some people will go further and say that her face may actually represent the land and what they have done to the land. And, you know, there's no space to plant. There's no... Tearing it up and building high-rise apartment buildings. Which they call rabbit hutches, which I think is really funny. That's Um, cute. I know. So these are some, like, sociological, anthropological interpretations for the kind of anxieties that this figure at this time in this culture might represent, but they are completely divorced from that more historical ancestral folklore that I was talking about earlier, that tradition within Japan that predated any mention of the slip mouth woman. Oh, very true. You know, Japan has an extremely interesting set of folklore. So within Japanese folklore, there are these interesting creatures, beings that are called yokai. Oh my god, that's that that's that song that what my song? daughter sings. That yokai, yokai, yokai. She's two, so it's really annoying and really adorable all at once. Yeah, you're talking about yokai watch. Yes, yokai watch. Right, and so this idea of yokai, these kind of monstrous creatures, is still around. Why are they in a watch that my two-year-old sings about? Well, we'll talk about that okay. <laughs> in just a little bit. Let's, <laughs> but let's talk about yokai in general. So yokai are, like I said, it's hard to define. It's very hard to define. You can consider it like a monster. Okay, so like a creature that lives and breathes and exists, but is not classified by biology. Right, it's like this this liminal being, this thing that exists between the real world and the supernatural. And it also usually exists in these borderland areas, these edges of town, mountains, ranges, between villages on those long forgotten paths, the dark ones with the branches reaching down. Oh, so like Snow White. Which is so scary. Have you like watched that scene as an adult where she runs through the woods and the trees reach out and grab her? Oh, it's wonderful. It's really, really scary. Okay, so what we are are distilling about yokai is that they're liminal creatures. Yes. They exist in the space between things. They resist definition. They do. They really do. Monster is like the best English translation you can come up with, but it's really not a great definition. I mean, if you look at the word, it's made of two Chinese kanji, meaning strange, mystery, or suspicion. And this is used in Japanese text as early as the 8th century. If you look at what a monster is, like, so let's say we think a monster, like right now, and just think of like a monster. What do you think of? Just a beast, snarling, messy, terrifying, large presence. Yeah. There's no elegance to a monster. Right. And if you go back to what the word monster actually means, it comes from the Latin word monstrum. And for the Romans, that signified a supernatural event. Thought to be portent from the gods, kind of a warning of some sort. Like a demonstration. Right, demonstrum. Yeah. (laughs) And so that definition fits very, very well with these creatures. Sort of just something out of the, the realm of the normal that seems to have powers that exceed those of everyday life. And so to attempt to define them a little more, we can kind of compare them to some other things in Japanese culture. And see, one of those is like a kami. A communist? No. 
<laughs> so this is a part of the Shinto. It could be called religion. Oh, wait. I know this one. Kami's like the the deity. Yes. Right. Right. It's like, it's like a deity. I mean, you can't think of it from those monotheistic ideas. You know, it's not this all seeing, all knowing God. Okay. I, I've always kind of thought of them as being akin to like Loa in voodoo. Why is that? They interact with the living. Each kind of have their own wheelhouse that they're sort of in charge of or related to without being necessarily patrons of it. Well, they're usually tied to something. So it's a very animistic idea. So they can inhabit anything in the natural world, especially like large, prominent things like a waterfall or a mountain or like an ancient tree in a forest. I always confuse kamis, which are more like deities, with just the general idea of a soul because it's like, oh, the tree has one or whatever. It seems like the essence of that living thing. And it, it kind of, it is, but it's very different than what would be considered like a, a human soul. So these things have these deep connection to these like local places and landscapes. But like I said, they're not like these kind of perfect gods. Like when you think of like a Judeo-Christian idea, well, actually, if you go back to the Judeo part... <laughs> They can kind of fit because sometimes they can be like quick to anger, have just be kind of hot headed, and not always necessarily good. So very Greek in this way. Yeah, they're very gray, very very gray characters, very blurry lines, and so it's also a blurry line between that idea of like a yokai and a kami. So some people suggest that a yokai is a kami that's been degraded. So kami are worshipped. Okay. They're worshipped and prayed to. And that's one of the big differences between a yokai. Another scholar says that yokai are unworshipped kami, and kami are worshipped yokai. Okay, so it's very uh, reflexive relationship between the participant or the... I want to say parishioner, but that's not the right word, but like the, the devotee and the entity. It's like it, they are what you make them. If you kind of beatify them or I'm using very Catholic words, I'm sorry. My Catholic bells. <laughs> if you sort of deify them, they will be deities. Yeah. So perspective is very important when it comes to these beings. Very, very important because they just exist almost on like a continuum, like a spectrum more than a. A or B. Okay, so no hard and fast definition. Where did they fall on the magical rainbow kami yokai color chart? Right. Okay. And so another type of being that is in Japanese folklore is the yurei. And so that is, again, not a great translation, but what you would consider is like a ghost. Okay, so leftover people who are dead. Right, so... It's very, like, vengeful spirit. So there's a a history of ancestor worship. So ghosts are not, in and of themselves, scary. It would be the ones that were not done right by. No, very so. It it really ties into some of the old, I mean, European traditions we've talked about before of ghosts, where you you have your familial ghosts. They're not necessarily bad things. You want them to come hang out and enjoy Halloween with you. Right. They're, They're your history. But these are not theirs. (laughs) These are the ones who left people behind that did not want to have them around or that did bad things in life, kind of. Oh, definitely. And so while some people 
say that yurei could be considered a type of yokai. Other scholars have put kind of definitions out there, which of course there are exceptions to. Do they argue about them? They do. And so a yokai has a particular place they're in, kind of we talked about. You know, they're related to that tree, that mountain pass, etc. They target anybody. Anybody that's kind of walking along that mountain pass. Anybody that crosses their path. Right. And they usually come out at twilight. Mm-hmm. Again, that liminal stage. Mm-hmm. That betweenness. It's different than Yure because they are not really associated with a particular location. Okay. So again, kind of sounds like that older tradition of ghosts in Western culture it wasn't like a haunted house. Right. They could come after you if you were the person that wronged them, and they would target those particular people. Okay, so they're like attached to you. Yes, it's a very vengeful spirit. And they can only appear in the third quarter of the hour of the ox between 2 and 2.30 a.m. My. Well, that's convenient. It's very specific. I feel like you could go, mm, well, I'm going to need to block this out. And, like, just make a note in your calendar. You have a standing appointment with your ghost that's going to show up and try to revenge you. Revenge, avenge themselves. <laughs> yes. So you're saying find, like, a temple to hide in. <laughs> so, you know, we kind of think of monsters and yokai as these, like, little creatures. You know, they can be compared to, like, specters or sprites or goblins or demons or ghosts, like we said. They can also come from these other ideas. It could be, like, an event like something one experiences through their senses. So like a sound? Right. So like if you hear a, a sound outside your window, you might say, what is that? And then you ask your grandmother and she tells you about this little yokai with little hammers that likes to bang things to annoy people. Or it could be like an odd feeling or like a presence. Like the sense that somebody's like walking behind you. Yeah. Kind of like that stalkery, creepy feeling. Right. It could just be like an uneasy feeling or even like a feeling of being tired or anything like that. You can really see that idea personified a very long time ago in the Heian period in Japan, which is between 794 and 1185. In this time, they had something called Mononoki. And this was a mysterious, troubling thing or matter. When they talk about a thing, they don't necessarily mean an object. It could be very amorphous. Anxiety, almost. Right, yeah, just like terror, that feeling of something going behind you, just things like that. That's a personification. Was that just the name for the feeling or was it a, a being? Both. Fabulous. And so we also had the idea of the One. And those are more of that demon, ogre-like creature. And they had this idea of the Hayaki Yoko, the night procession of a hundred One. A hundred demons. Like demons. A hundred like demons. Yeah. I don't like it. Actually, I think I looked into this a little bit when we were doing our Night Marchers episode. I was looking at... Famous supernatural processions, and this is one that was cited. It sounds kind of horrifying. It can be. <laughs> it definitely can be. No one wants to get caught in this. And this could happen anywhere. It could happen in the capital. It could happen in the countryside. Whenever this was ha- going to happen, everyone hid. Everyone went to their homes and tried to hide away. How would they know it was going to happen? Well. <laughs> Did Titan Leeds put it in the almanac? No. Even better. They had the Bureau of Divination. And these were practitioners of Anmiyodo, 
which was this kind of idea of divination and geomancy based on the principles of the yin and yang. All about balance. Right. So when things were getting out of balance, I assume that the hundred demons were coming. Hundred like demons. Oh, no. Oh, no. You can say it. No, I like hundred like Three letters. I like like demons better. If you would not heed their call, (laughs) you could get in a lot of trouble. And so in one case, we have one character and his name is Sime. And he's actually a historical figure from around a thousand. And he was an omiyoji. While he was really, really this guy. (laughs) He existed on paper, well documented. Yes. But fantastic tales grew up around him. As they do. About his magical powers with the One. So it was said that his father saved the life of a fox, mm-hmm. who then transformed into a beautiful woman. And what does one do with a beautiful woman? You have babies, of course. <laughs> oh, the the father had babies with the fox lady? She was foxy. Lady. And so one of the babies was Sime. Right. And so, so he's part foxy lady? He's kind of part... Yokai. Okay. And so he kind of supposedly had this very special touch and a little bit more. Yeah, he did. I'm kidding. That was the dad. Other stories tell of him traveling with his teacher when they came across the procession of demons. Okay. Of One. Like demons. And he was able to cast a spell to hide them until they passed. So he was able to conceal himself and his teacher from a hundred passing like demons. Yes. Sounds like the dude knows what he's doing. At this time, the Unmyoji and other people with kind of mystical powers were said to have Shikigami, and they are like familiars. So a familiar is usually associated with witches. In our tra- in the Western yes. tradition. And that is it's like an animal that they can sort of send out into the world to do their bidding. And it's kind of similar. They're like like a spirit servant. So these were, in a way, yokai that they could make do their bidding. So they were like little servants, but they were also magical bodyguards. I want a magical bodyguard. Well, this is like a demonic, grotesque magical bodyguard. I want one. I'm not kidding. It changes nothing for me. Now I want one more. Well, his wife thought they were so ugly. She demanded he kick them out. Maybe you should have kicked her out and kept them. I think they sound lovely. Well, he had 12. The way you said that makes it sound like other people did not have 12. 12? 12's a lot. I think 12's a, a fair amount. Yeah, it's more... Santa doesn't even have that many reindeer. Right. And so, like I said, these kind of mystical, magical tales came up around this guy. And he's still around. What do you mean? He is the protagonist in a series of romantic historical novels called Onmyoji. <laughs> Bodice Ripper erotica novels. With demons. Like, with, with One. With One and Yokai and Semi. Yes. Oh my. Oh my. Oh my. And so during this time period, you also start to see picture scrolls. So Amaki. And these are those beautiful manuscripts that are sometimes illuminated and that have that fine calligraphy on them that kind of chronicle everything right this is the just the beginning of written history during the moromachi period which is from 1392 to 1573 
you really see the picture scrolls coming into play. They were very popular among merchants and the working class, and they often had folk narratives in them. And so there was one particular scroll, the Hayaki Yago Imaki, which was by Tosa. And this really kind of began that yokai boom at the time. What he did was illustrated a yokai and then read its name by it. And so as you would go through the picture scroll, you would just, each time you pulled it out, it would reveal a different yokai or one at the time. Very cool. Right. I and want one of those and a bodyguard. So you know their own. names. Yeah. yeah you keep them all separate. Roll call. I think I'd have 13. Oh, you think you're better than him? Mm-hmm. No, I don't. But it just seems like the sort of thing that would like me. Little demons? Yes. Grotesque demons that my wife would hate. So, you know, there's a lot of questions on what this was used for. Was it just entertainment purposes? Was it educational? Were they using it for teaching? Or were they just recording these different kind of folk ideas and narratives? I think all of it. Probably so. I think we try to narrow the focus too much. Looking back a lot of times, I, I think that people were capable of layered intention even I, I agree. even yeah. years and years ago. Yeah, I agree, definitely. Could be like, this is fun and interesting. It should be written down. We should write this down for so many reasons. So at this time is when you start seeing something that you always kind of hear about when you hear about like kind of weird Japanese stories, like weird ideas. And that is the Sukumogami. The Sukumogami. I think these are fun. These are sort of surreal takes on everyday objects that have been yokified. Yokified. You've been yokified. It's, it's like a catchphrase. Are you going to like pull pranks with your one familiars? Why else would you have them? Like you've been yokified. Boom. The yokai boom. Right. And so, you know, these traditional ideas of these one are these kind of ogre like kind of creatures. And this makes kind of any everyday object. It could be a musical instrument, an umbrella etc. And it's anything that survived over 100 years. Okay. So anything can become a yokai so long as it has a century of life in it. Yes. Even in animals. How many animals do you know that are living longer than 100 years? Well, that's kind of the idea is that if anything survives for that long... It must be supernatural in some way. Look, it becomes supernatural. Kind of absorbs this essence. Okay. It's kind of a fun idea. I like that idea. But, you know, the idea of these new types of creatures, in a way, it trivializes it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, well, these were these demons that would kill you if you were going down a mountain pass, and now it's your umbrella. Right. It makes it manageable. Make wet. <laughs> yeah. But it also brings it into everyday life. That's true. But is there, there's sort of an element of humor to it, like an intentional. Yes. There is an element of kind of spoofing it. That seems very surreal. It seems like the fur teacup to me when I think about it. Surrealism sort of exists to call into attention things that are absurd and find humor in the mundane and elevate things to the sublime that are very drudgerous. It's this weird reflexive relationship. Right. But in this way, instead of making it humorous, it's like anything can come to get you. That's less funny. <laughs> Anything can have that negative idea. That's less funny and more absurd. But through all of this and through the production of Mini Amaki, you started to 
developed this kind of bestiary, this pantheon of yokai. And it took a lot of these rural folk tales on yokai and preserved them. You know, this is a th- almost a thousand years ago, and they're still around now because of that. So exciting and so beautiful. It makes me so happy. No, I agree because these things are still inspiring people today. Well, it's like when you have these beautiful flourishings of imagination or um, creativity where you're putting together complex ideas and finding alternate explanations and personifications for concepts we don't necessarily have words for. That's got some sort of universal truth to it. It's going to hold up and it's going to resonate with people for generations and generations. And it has. And I, I think that it's just incredible that we have the source material to look back on and we can see where people had a reverence for these stories enough to write them down and they still, we should be so grateful. Well, and it also tells us something about the culture that they were created in. Yes, absolutely. So as time moves on. As it does. We get into the Edu period and that's when these creatures start to have other terms associated with them, such as the Bakimamano. That meant changing thing. So that really brought into the foreground that these could be the shape-shifting kind of creatures, but also the idea that they were just strangely formed or frightening or anomalous beings. So in the Edo period in Japan is when you start to see a big push for unification. Which would equal major political change. Political, cultural change, also... Have to change all the pharaoh's hats. Wrong, wrong civilization. I stay by it. Okay. You also get a lot of cultural exchange. Okay. So a lot of these ideas get exchanged between different parts of Japan. You also have a big developmental boom, and there's a lot of publishing at this time, too. And you start to also get, like, kabuki theater and banraku theater. So this just means rapid spread of ideas. Yeah, rapid spread of ideas and these fantastical ideas are, I mean, always going to spread very fast. They're super interesting. They're sticky. So at this time, you had this tradition called Hiyaku Monogatari, and this meant 100 stories. This is still a slumber party game. I think I know where you're going with this. Well, let's see. So in this, you would gather around and you'd have like, like candles or lanterns lit. Each person would take a turn telling a short, spooky story. And each time you finished your story, you put out one of the lights. And by the time everyone had told their spooky story, you'd be in darkness. This was sad that you could do this to help summon a yokai. Yeah, this is definitely something that is keyed in upon in like summer party games. Like I said, like some people... Would do a truncated version of this because nobody has a hundred candles. At the time, they weren't necessarily doing a hundred stories too. It's like just like the hundred years. It just is meant to be mean a bunch, lots, yeah, more than two, maybe even more than four. But you know, you would tell ghost stories and you'd see a ghost at the end. But it's also played out in things like Bloody Mary. You know, where you can summon a ghost, you blow out a candle, tell a scary story. Yeah, all those things. Yeah, this idea is not gone at all, and you can see it in lots of cultures, which means that it must have some cultural significance. You know, it's the spreading of these these fears. Well, it's no, it's the mastery of it. Well, right, you have to have that fear. You have to be afraid of something to be able to master it, mm-hmm. right? So while the oral practice, you know, kind of died out, 
they did start to collect these stories in, in books and in, in publications. They were called by the same name, and they were very popular and continued on through time. But also at this time, you have, like in the West, a time of serious intellectual inquiry. Right. This is that time period we always talk about where change was happening so rapidly. People were becoming very interested in the natural world, documenting, explaining, categorizing Yes. And and like people like to point out, like H is always kind of like a step ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little earlier than, you know, like the Victorians and, and that time period. But this is what I like to call science. Exclamation point. Yes. Underline. Capitals. Comes in. And some of this is based on this Neo-Confucian philosophy, uh, Shushigaku. That is, again, just trying to explain everything and try to understand everything because there's no way we can understand who we truly are unless we understand everything we're positively descartian like i think therefore i am so i think about everything therefore i'm better and so you're right we start to have a lot of documentation and this time a 105 volume encyclopedia is released called the three realms this comes from a combination of Japanese sources, Chinese sources. This time they start to get a lot of information from China, such as like pharmacopoeias, etc. In this, it presented all of the world, everything, 105 volumes. So that sounds like positively Tolkien-esque. I mean, like how many volumes were in your Encyclopedia Britannica? 28. Yeah, so this was like four times as much. <laughs> wow. And so in this, it would include like rhinoceros. Or, like, whale. And then the next thing under the, like, fish-like animal section would be mermaids. Fun! I like this world. So much. It should be fair. A mermaid's almost as believable as a rhinoceros. Right. If you have these all these kind of mythical creatures next to these other creatures you've never seen, and you're like, this one's like the size of a tank. I guess they didn't have tanks then, but... <laughs> This large creature with armored skin and horns. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Armored unicorns. Got it. These were done in very academic style. So it was very kind of believable in a way. Mm-hmm. But and it was also, they started to be used in more satirical forms as well. They're carrying on that tradition of your evil umbrella. Was the evil umbrella in the three realms? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we need answers. We're going to have to read it. All 105 volumes. In Japanese. In Japanese. Yeah, it's a plan. Why don't you get on that? <laughs> right now. I already learned enough Japanese for this episode. I'm going to send my one. They're going to read it for me and report back. Perfect. That's a good use of my 13 one. So as we continue to move through time, we get to the Meiji period. And this is from 1868 to 1912. So these are your Japanese Victorians. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they do still, they have a lot of cultural exchange Yeah, with Europe and with the West at this time. They start to push towards that, quote, civilization and enlightenment. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And you're in the next the next thing you're going to tell me is going to make me so happy because you're going to tell me that somebody was like, I heard about this fellow named William James and I want to be just like him. And so I'm doing it. Yeah. So. <laughs> Okay. I knew you'd like this guy. Enria was a Buddhist priest 
And he really worked under those new ideas of like demystifying everything and explaining everything. And he was actually a graduate of the University of Tokyo as well. He was the first person to graduate with a degree in philosophy from there. So then he went home to live with his parents and hung out in the basement. No. <laughs> he started ghost hunting. So <laughs> Not necessarily. But he was very interested in these ideas of yokai. Mm-hmm. And so he is actually the person that really popularized that term yokai. So he've used lots of different terms for these beings. And they're called different things throughout time. This is when they really are called yokai. And that is the term. And it's what's still used. And he forms yokai gaku. Yokai gaku. Which is the study of yokai. Or go- yokaiology. Uh, it's catchy. I people, dig him. Yeah, I people even him. called him Professor Yokai. <laughs> okay. Can he be one of my bodyguards? No, he's your like wise old professor you ask questions to. Okay, fine. He really wanted to analyze that idea of kind of the psychological and philosophical reasons for Yokai to exist. And so he did form the Fushigi Kekyukai. And that was the Japanese Society for Psychical Research. Basically, it translates to the Mystery Research Society. And he did model it after the Society for Psychical Research. Oh, my God. That makes me so happy in all the ways. So while this group did not actually exist for very long, he continued on with his yokaiology. Like I said, he was trying to demystify them. So he split them up. And divided them into false mysteries and true mysteries. It's very psychical research to say. Yeah. And so he said these false mysteries could be superstitions. They could be mistaken mystery. Or they could be artificial mystery. And he wanted to weed out these false things to get to the true mysteries. The secret things. The the core of our existence. Capital T. Truth. Right. Okay, so you can have like fakers, you can have misunderstandings, and then you have the genuine article. So interest in Japanese folklore continued to surge as you had more and more people going to university and there was more exchange with the West and the study of folklore became popular. And there was really a big boom after the 15-year war, which ended in... 1945. That's right. You know, after this, you had people like Mizuki, who's a famous manga and anime artist who helped popularize these ideas of yokai by including them in his manga and anime. And he went back to these original old scrolls, and that's where he got his ideas from. That's really cool. Although he also, as all good folklore does, updated them, created new ones changed some, but then also kept a lot of traditional ideas as well. So through time, you continue to have them throughout Japanese culture. You can think of we mentioned like the J-Horror films. Mm -hmm. You have the Studio Ghibli films like My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, which all have very central characters that are based on yokai. And then of course you mentioned Yokai Watch, Yokai, yokai, yokai. Or you can even think of things like Pokemon. Oh, God. If I have to look at one more Pokemon life cycle, I'm going to nod my arm off. Well, we're going to be showing them to us. I'm like, oh, that's like that yokai. Because <laughs> there are a lot. I mean, a lot are based on animals, but a lot are based on traditional yokai as well. Which ones? I'll show you later. Okay. So 
they're still around now in popular culture. Okay, so are these today sort of considered to be figures of entertainment, or is there a a large section of the population that believes in them? Well, that's a good question without a good answer. Oh, well, those are my favorite. Well, so remember we said these creatures are liminal beings, right? And the idea of the belief in yokai is almost like a liminal state in okay. and of itself. So like how you are about ghosts. Yeah. And how most people are about things like that. They're like, I don't really believe in them. But let me tell you a story about when I saw a ghost. Exactly. So Michael Dylan Foster, who has written a ton of incredible work about yokai that we will reference a lot in this episode... Highly recommend you check out some of his books, such as The Book of Yokai or Pandemonium on Parade. He looks like a young Steven Pinker, by the way. Dashing. So you can pause. Go read it. No, like really, he is one of the best academic writers I have run across in all of my research. It is so palatable, so understandable. He is just so good at guiding you through really difficult concepts. I cannot recommend his work highly enough. Everybody should go buy all his books. Go, go, go. He's not paying us for this either. Should. (laughs) No, we bought his book. Yeah. He states that the idea of do people believe in yokai, you know, it it exists in that half belief, half doubt place. He says it creates this cognitive resonance. Again, we're all about balance over here. Well, we've talked about cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. plenty, and that's when these two ideas that don't meet up cause problems. But in this case, these two ideas that don't really meet up make sense because that's how they really are. It reflects this realistic and meaningful stance. So we have the traditional idea of yokai. And then we have a character emerging, you know, way after this tradition was established. I I feel like we kind of had a, a set pantheon. I'm sure it evolves and changes. But is she a new yokai? Is she an old yokai? Like, is she based on something and just kind of updated? Like, is she even really a yokai? W- what are we dealing with here? I think without a doubt, you can say that she is a yokai. She fits the definition extremely well. Just because she was created in the 70s does not mean that she's not a yokai. Because yokai traditionally represent... Places or ideas. Yeah, your fears, things you may be scared of. These ideas, just like any other legends we have in other cultures. Is she like a traditional yokai? Well, she might be tied to a few. Okay. So there are, some, there are a lot, several that are cited. So here's a few of them. So she does have connections with Abumi, also known as the birthing woman. She sounds fun. Yes. And so if you were a lone male traveler... And you were walking along a bridge, you'd be met by a pretty young woman. Lucky you. And she'd be carrying something in her arms. Presents. It's presents for you. Because she likes you so much. Well, she would ask you to hold her baby. That happens to you all the time. Well, that doesn't count. (laughs) And And you say sure. I do. (laughs) Then she leaves or vanishes. And you're left literally like holding the bag. Yes. And this... Baby becomes heavier and heavier and heavier until the man cannot move anymore and he's using all of his strength. Or sometimes it even turns into a stone. That sounds disconcerting. It also sounds like Blue Baby, which is another slumber party game. It kind of does. And so 
this idea, you know, this particular yokai has ties to those fears of, of safe childbirth and delivery and being able to care for this newborn infant. And women dying in childbirth and men being left with babies. I think that's very literally part of the fear. No, I agree. I agree with you. And so another one is the Roku Rukubi. And this is the rubbernecked woman. Okay, these are some of my favorites. The traditional illustrations of this yokai are fantastic. We'll post them on the website. Yeah, they're beautiful. So they're women and they can appear just normal in the day. Good for them. Normal one. Very mystique But then either at night or at certain times, they get this long stretched out neck. And it's like it curves in on itself. It's like, it's not just like a giraffe. It's... It's like a snake. It's like a snake. Serpentine. Yes. yes. It's serpentine. It's very long. It's not like it's three feet long. It's like, you know, more than 10 feet long. It could wrap around somebody. And the story that goes along with this is that she's born a monster through the crimes of her parentage. So usually the father has some sort of nefarious action that he's done, such as like the murder of a lover or you know, to be with someone else. Or, you know, killing someone to get money or et cetera. And then his future daughter is born with this condition. Mm -hmm. And originally, she was fairly harmless. It's just like, she's a person and this happened. But of course- Just a tragic figure. Yes. And then as time goes by, of course, they add in that she eats people, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, that's going to get tacked on to basically any story. You can be like, there was a sweet old lady and now she eats people 100 years later. Just It is the natural evolution of any rumor. I think so. Let's write a paper on that. Just a lot of stories. So she ends up like kind of carrying the crimes of her father. And usually they try to live these normal lives. But then when it's discovered they have this terrible condition, you know, no sympathy is given to them. They know they're gonna, she's going to come eat them in their sleep. And she has to kind of go on the run. That seems problematic. Is it just one or is this something that happens? Like if any father's bad, this can happen to his daughter. Yeah, it, it could be the result of anything. Okay. Of any negative action. So this isn't one thing that happened one time. It's something that can happen if you're bad. Right. Okay. And so another one that's closely tied to our slit-mouthed woman is the Yamamamba. And she's this kind of crone, ogress creature that lives in the mountains. She's a yokai of the mountains. Mm. She has long black hair and piercing eyes and a slit mouth. What? Really? And she's a very liminal character, as many of these are. Sort of a threshold deity. There are tales of her being good, and there are tales of her being bad. So, in one folktale, a mother leaves her children to visit the grave of her husband and warns them not to open the door because these mountains have a Yamamamba. Good reason not to open the door. I agree with her. And if you let her in, she's going to eat you. She's going to eat you? She's going to eat you. Eat you. She's going to eat you. And so, the children are playing in the house and they hear a knock and they go it's a woman and she says to let her in it's their mother and they're about to let her in but then they notice that she has hairy hands oh you're so not my mother you have hairy hands get out of here you stupid yama mambo exactly and so she goes off and she does she shave her hands jacob yes that's practical solution to the problem i admire her tenacity and practicality and then she comes back, and they're like, you have a rough voice. And then she goes, and she comes back and changes her voice. And it keeps going until eventually she tricks them, gets in, and... Eats them. Eats them. She's got some stick to I admire that about her. 
Right. And so that's the story of her being bad. But there are stories of her as more of a positive figure as well. But I think that we can look at these and pull out some essential elements of the Slipmouth Woman in each one. So in this story, we have her harming kids. And she's got the slit mouth. She can transform herself. Yeah, she's that transformative nature. There are other positive tales. And such as she is the mother of a like great hero in okay. Japanese folk tales. Like his boy hero. Cool. And so in there she's like this, you know, single, kind of independent, strong maternal figure. That's awesome. I was thinking when you told the last story that it was sort of a cautionary tale against single motherhood because it was, you know, this woman who didn't have anyone to leave with her kids, right? Like she was No, it definitely could be. Yeah, and so it's interesting that she takes on that single mother role and it's portrayed in a positive way. Ends up mothering a hero. Good for you, lady. So you definitely see this bridge between this kind of nostalgic ideas of the yokai and bringing some of these ideas forward. Right. So in the first example that you gave, we have a woman who approaches strangers sort of on in public spaces and asks something of them. The situation ends up transforming into something that's very negative for them. And that sort of echoes slip mouth woman. And then in the second one, you have misunderstood, disfigured women who are forced into sort of extreme behavior. And sometimes eat people. Sometimes. They're pretty well behaved. It's a lot. It's a long swallowing process. It's like when an anaconda swallows something. Yes. You can see the bump. For a long, long time. Then you have the third tale of the Yamamamba, where she is going after kids. She has the slit mouth. She's sort of got a terrifying appearance, but she can also transform herself. She can mask those things in order to approach people. And sometimes she eats kids. And lots of eating of kids. So my woman doesn't eat anybody. Give it a hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. She's going to be eating people before we know it. Oh yeah, before we're done. Year 2073. Just a story podcast update. Slitmouth woman eats her first victim. Neck bump takes forever. Now, I think it's really interesting that the female yokai have always featured very heavily in the pantheon. And they do sort of personify these very femicentric concerns. They do. You can't help but remember, like, these were being created by women, too. They're folk tales. They're not, like, authors writing. Right. <laughs> these aren't, like, academics sitting in their ivory tower writing. You know, these are the people in the villages and the fields. Right. And they express concerns that are unique to women or that hinge on women. Anxiety about mothering, acceptance, conforming to beauty standards, all of these things. And in that vein... I think there's something really interesting to be discussed about the Slipmouth Woman and the time that she came to prominence in Japan. So in the late 1970s, there were magazines that circulated in Japan called Women's Weeklies or Women's Magazines. And they were printed on cheap newsprint. They're kind of tabloidy. Yeah. yeah. Michael Dylan Foster went into a beautiful discussion of the role of women's magazines in kind of creating this normative appearance for women. And he said that the tone of the magazines, as in Western magazines, was very disciplinary. And they created a very codified and readily identifiable normative standardization of beauty. Yeah, something you see being done now. Yes. 
And you can see echoed within the text of these magazines that they sort of take up almost an authoritarian or disciplinarian tone by reading these magazines and sort of subscribing to the set of values that they are projecting, we encounter something which Michel Foucault defines as a docile body. We become docile bodies. What's a docile body? Well, Foucault defines it as a body which may be subjected, used, or transformed, or improved. There's a force outside of the body which acts upon it in order to change the submissive form. And he wrote about this in the context of punishment and discipline. But you can see that same sort of pedagogical power echoed in the narratives and advertisements that are within these tabloid pages. Now, they're gossipy, they discuss celebrities, and they discuss lifestyle and have some human interest stories, but their primary focus is on this idea of agency and transformation and sort of creating this very standard appearance. Did they have like 50 ways to please your man? Uh, 50 ways to change your face, more like. Okay. Less sex tip, more don't eat that. More aesthetic. Mm Mm-hmm. There was an emphasis on alteration. In the text, there's this sort of uninterrupted, constant coercion where readers, generally the female audience, is being directed and sort of bullied to adhere. Like, you have to do this or you're not a woman. You can control it. Why aren't you perfect? Why not you take your tapeworm pills? Right, exactly. So they had information on dieting, aesthetic treatments, cosmetic surgery, corsets. Foster says that 35% of the magazine is dedicated to those ideas, and that's excluding cosmetics. It's just those ideas. And there was a very pervasive idea in these articles of using beauty as a weapon. So what does that mean? Like like using sex as a weapon? Like, no. Like... Um, it is. It's using sex, but you don't actually have to engage. It's the idea. The sex. allure. Right. You, you use beauty. If you conform to the male standard of beauty, you will get more attention and get ahead quicker. Because you're entering the public sphere, presumably. So by being in this like public sphere, the patriarchal society. Patriarchal phallocentric society, yes. Your beauty is the best way you have to get ahead. It's right. where you get power from. Yeah, that is your currency. It's your cultural capital. It's what you have to offer. If you don't have your appearance, you have nothing to offer the world. Bleak. And so in taking all of that into consideration, the idea that there's proliferation of this normative standard of beauty, that women are being asked to change their appearances to adhere more closely to this aesthetic, and the idea that they have to do so in order to circulate in the male-dominated public sphere, we're reminded of why the slip mouth woman has to be a woman. Because the idea of a man walking around asking people if he was good looking or if he was handsome or even beautiful seems comedic. It seems light and silly, like a parody of sorts. But with a woman, the question can be asked in earnest. Foster says that she arouses people's terror because she works powerfully on their tacit understanding with regard to how much effort women must expend on their own beauty and how much they are controlled by it as well as how difficult it is for a woman who is not considered beautiful to live in the world. And so it makes me think of those ideas that she was a plastic surgery victim. Right. And that was an angle that was very much capitalized upon in these women's weekly magazines. And there would be articles that had that narrative 
that version of the narrative where she's a botched plastic surgery victim right next to advertisements suggesting that women go get plastic surgery. Well, that's perfect advertising. Right. And so she created this subversive text by virtue of existing. Like on accident. (laughs) Right. Just the pure saturation of these magazines with those kinds of advertisements meant that that irony was bound to arise. It's not like they could just omit it if it fit in the space. Because it had to go somewhere. And if it wasn't on this page, it would be on the next page. So the situations couldn't be avoided. And she began to kind of have this almost quality of parody about her. Because there would be features of, you know, a woman who has been made up to look like the slip mouth woman. But they would include photos of the model before she had the makeup applied. And they'd be situated beside before and after shots from makeovers or plastic surgery photos. Oh, someone did that on purpose. Come on. I just think that the pure saturation rate, like just the amount that was in the magazines that had that kind of visual coding had to be so high that there was no real way to avoid it. And by carrying the tone of the magazine into the stories of the Slipmouth Woman, they were directly echoing the things that she subverted. That's fantastic. I love it. It's a great example of some of the modern concerns of femininity, really, and how you see them portrayed in female monsters. Oh, female monsters are a long and storied tradition, though, aren't they? Of course. And so in the case of the Slipmouth Woman, kind of in the context of this normative beauty standard that was becoming pervasive at the time, we can see that people were opting into this vision of femininity and that it was becoming almost mandatory in order to circulate in the public sphere. Femininity was becoming mandatory, this codified, rigid version of it. But as we'll see as we continue our discussion of female monsters, while femininity may have been mandatory, femaleness was repulsive and wild. Ah, paradox. Paradox. Yeah, so female monsters have been pervasive throughout all cultures, throughout the world. And like we talked about, they're always, they're frequently used to express the anxieties and fears and concerns related to that feminine kind of ideas, such as like motherhood and birth and child rearing. You know, lady stuff. Lady parts. But there's this idea that the female body is so strange in its capacity for those things that it's already horrific. And in old traditions, there's ideas of the kind of cannibalistic mother. And that's the reverse of the life-giving mother. And instead of producing life, that she can engulf the child and kill the child and have that monstrous side of her. Right, and that pairs very closely with the idea of the oral sadistic mother, which is one of my favorites. And that is a mother that wants to eat her child because her child enjoys eating her. Of course. Logic. Logic. That's some Freudian BS right there, ladies and gentlemen. Hot and fresh. So female monsters have always existed in the imagination. But I think that it's really important to consider the idea that the more that we look at them, the more that we realize they're not just analogs, just counterparts to the male, right? They're not simply a Frankenstein with long hair. They have specific concerns and specific roles. And those roles 
are dictated by their femininity or their femaleness. And therefore, their femininity itself is monstrous. Right. So they're not female monsters. No. They're, as Barbara Creed would say, products of the monstrous feminine. Ooh, good phrase. I know. It's catchy. So she defines the monstrous feminine as what it is about women that is shocking, terrifying, horrific, or abject. Abject. So abject means like vile, disgusting, repulsive. It's like what we find gross (laughs) about girls. Girls are icky. It is girls are icky on a primordial level. Cooties. It's it is the earliest primeval version of cootie shot, right? Like okay, so dot What's dot cootie shot? dot dot cootie shot. What's a dot dot cootie shot? Oh my god! Okay, is that like when you like give cooties and you're chasing or whatever? Yeah, oh, okay. and like you, you do your fingers crossed and you're like, I got my cootie shot, which is so funny because it's like a vaccine joke which kids make. Or like penicillin. <laughs> yeah. So let's think of girls are icky cooties, right? So the abject is kind of like a scholarly discussion of the dot dot cootie shot. It is like going, I reject this. I don't want this. You can't give it to me. It is defining ourselves by our unwillingness to accept or internalize cooties that girls have. So we're establishing borders. Yes. So, I mean, thinking about this from these kind of terms, this is a very Freudian ideas. Like dot dot cootie shot? Yes. <laughs> It has to be terrible so you don't make it part of yourself. And you can kind of think of like the creation or definition of the abject as an inoculation, a way to keep yourself from internalizing what you perceive as vile. So Greed states that we must expel what is abject, but doing so requires recognizing that it is always already within us. We cannot approach the repugnant abject, yet we cannot be without it. It is the border that defines us. So we have to separate ourselves away from this monstrous feminine. In order to do that, we define it as abject. And by defining it as abject, we create a clear division between ourselves and the other. Things that are abject highlight the fragility of order. And that doesn't just mean social order. It can be anything from sanity to our ideas of gender and self, to, you know, external social order, to a very internal personal value system. Anything that threatens those established systems of understanding. So when are we separating ourselves from this terrible feminine? Is this like in puberty? Mm, I think always. I think it begins really early. I think in the establishment of, I mean, we're going to go full Freud, folks, buckle up. Establishing an ego or superego defining a self, we must reject the abject. And this is seen really clearly and really early in sort of working through the Oedipal complex. It confronts us in our earliest attempts to release the hold of the maternal entity. There's always that connection to and fear of the mother's body. Abjection preserves it. We must reject it in an attempt to be whole, to be homogeneous subjects. But the very act of continually rejecting the abject, here, the connection between the mother, brings into existence again and again the psychic echo of the violent physical separation from the mother that is always within us. So we have to reject the mother. We're just going to, like, bear with me. 
I'm not saying I don't think we all have mother issues, but Freud said we did. And this is kind of a take on a Freudian analysis. Well, no, so what it is, is that you have to separate yourself from the mother. So this time in the early stages, you're like the same person still. Mm-hmm. And so you have to separate yourself, like the mm-hmm. idea of self and your ego to establish your own ego by moving away from the mother. There's an idea that as long as we're under maternal authority, we're sort of at this pre-social stage and we're dealing with very concrete ideas about our body and trying to define our body's borders and learning how to control bodily functions, just very basic early development. And we're reluctant to proceed in our development so long as we've not made an effort to separate ourselves from the mother figure. And so it becomes very necessary that we not only separate from, but reject that kind of authority in order to take part in the paternalistic society, which will ultimately allow us to become fully realized humans. So in order to reassert this condemnation and rejection, we have to situate women's bodies in the space of the abject. And the gender is absolutely key in sort of constructing this idea of this female monster that allows us to fully define that border of self and other. So what is it that makes the female body so monstrous? So Creed states that femininity itself is monstrous. And this goes back to the ideas, you know, as far back as Aristotle, He stated that woman is literally a monster, a failed and botched male who is only born female due to an excess of moisture and coldness during the process of conception. Man, they had signs down. Done. Why did we continue to investigate? I don't know. Yeah, botched male. So it's this idea that the lack of a penis, the lack of a phallus creates a monster because they're deformed. Women are deformed because they don't have man parts. The female body is reviled as abject for men and women. Women are taught to internalize self-hatred or shame of our bodily functions, such as breastfeeding, giving birth, and especially menstruation. The abject female body must be covered, hidden, or disguised by traditional modes of femininity. Woman is still other, but her abjection is concealed. All right, it's that othering, that separating, that creating borders. Right, and we are expected to hide the things that would be frightening. We are expected to kind of constrain and cover. So besides the female body being so absolutely vile and disgusting and terrible, right? how can a woman otherwise be monstrous? So there's an idea that mothers can sort of become even more monstrous and create more problems and anxieties for children and society as a whole by sort of refusing to relinquish their hold on a child. So like your education mama? (laughs) Education mama is an example of that idea, but I think that another term that gets used a lot to describe that kind of mothering is the archaic mother. Okay, what's that? It's very literally a mother who will not let their child grow up. And it's this sort of refusal to let go of that function. Uh, You see that played upon a lot of times in horror movies like Psycho, where Norman had an overly close relationship with his mother. Um, You see it in movies like Carrie, where her mother is overbearing, kind of terrifying mom. 
Like, Grindel. Well, I mean, Carrie. Carrie is a great example of all of this. Right. Oh, my God. Carrie is such a monstrous feminine movie. That is just Stephen King playing with this idea in front of us. I right, have that, like, overbearing mother that is literally saying, like, sex is terrible, being a woman's terrible, dirty pillows. <laughs> but then you also have those ideas that King and Brian De Palma are playing with in the movie of, of the blood. Oh, the blood is such a thing. I mean, we have that opening scene where she is like literally exploring her sexuality and looking at female bodies and kind of being fascinated. And then we have Minarch or menstruation and it kind of derails and defiles the whole scene. And then you have that echo, of course, at the end of that very important scene where she's crowned prom queen and farce and people pour pig's blood over her and echo that sort of thematic defilement and then you have confrontation with the mother all of it it is all centered on this ideology of women as monsters and it's not just in the way that we look at the villains in horror films that really informs this perspective of the monstrous feminine we see this in what male characters and male antagonists do to female bodies in these movies so like in slasher flicks. Yes, very much. And you see that kind of violence is is working to create the borders that are essential in defining what is abject. And by tearing apart the body, by reducing the body to a series of gaping wounds and defiling it in that way, we are making it manageable and we're also symbolically purifying it. We're also symbolically purifying ourselves by defiling it. And in fact, the whole horror genre has such a almost fetishistic connection to the idea of blood and bleeding bodies and bleeding female bodies and wounds and knives. And you just see this kind of working through of this nervousness about women. Well, and you can also see in lots of classic films the classic anxieties associated with femininity. Right, and these can range from the very literal... A monster. Yes, like the Wicked Witch of the West. Scaring children for almost 100 years. <laughs> I love her. And you have things like Grendel's mother would fit in that category. Scaring people for millennia. <laughs> uh, the Alien Queen. Scaring people for 30 years. <laughs> That one's so important, too, because in in designing Alien, Geiger is referenced so heavily, but the lead makeup artist would be like, I wanted her to be a sexy monster and have a face like a vagina. Watch the interview. It's fabulous. And we have Carrie. It kind of fits in this category because she has supernatural powers. And then you have Reagan from The Exorcist, who, although she is possessed, is definitely kind of aligned with the devil. And that's another interesting movie to discuss because it happens in the domestic sphere. And we see this kind of direct confrontation between like the patriarchal outside social sphere. The priest. The priest. Literally the father figure coming in. Father. (laughs) Yes, right? You have these women who went and tried to make it on their own, silly women. Now the devils come and they're forced back into the domestic sphere. They're aligned with the devil they're becoming the mother's lost control of the daughter. Sexual overtones um, and an innocent child. You're right. And, you know, there's just poop and blood and vomit and urine and everything else everywhere. And yeah. So that's an interesting 
moment. Then you also have movies like Cat People, which are just cool and you should Google them. Well, I mean, you also have the idea of like the bad mother. Speaking of Psycho, like Mother Bates. Does she have a name? I don't think she has a name. She's just Mother. She does in the sequels, I think. You have, again, Margaret White from Carrie. Um, You might have people like Pamela Voorhees. Let's talk about that for a second. So she's the actual person killing people in the The first first Friday Friday the 13th. 13th. Yeah. I recently saw an interview from the screenwriter, and he was talking about how upset he was that they made Jason such a killer. (laughs) In the sequels. Well, he probably thought he was writing like a counterpart to Psycho, like an ode to Psycho in this really cerebral thriller. And then look what it turned into. Like I can imagine. I can see it. I'm going to I'm gonna throw like Nurse Ratchet out in there too. This kind of maternal figure that is trying to take care of people, but is doing a terrible job at it. I think she fits. And then you also have like Mommy Dearest, Joan Crawford. No more wire hangers. Yeah, she's great. And then you have this kind of like weird baby shit that happens in movies. Like not not actual weird baby shit that happens in real life, but in movies, like weird baby themes. And you see things like that playing out in Rosemary's Baby. Or this interesting film I came across while I was researching for this, which sounds horrifying and I plan to see with you as soon as we're able to watch a movie which maybe you know six years from now but it's called inside and it's a french film about fetal abduction no thank you it sounds so good but then another film that i thought was super interesting was babadook oh so good go watch it pause go watch it no really go watch really? it <laughs> so babadook is written and directed by a female right by a woman Australian woman. Does that make a difference? <laughs> Just saying. It's true. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, so we didn't have it released here until after like a Sundance release. And then, so it was like hard to see for a long time. Um, but it's available on Netflix now. It's really interesting because it definitely deals with the, with the ideas that women can become monsters. And motherhood can kind of turn you into a monster. It's horrifying because she's not dealing with that kind of monsterfication at a distance, she's allowing the audience to internalize it and sort of playing with ideas of madness and sort of reflecting back all of the things that have been projected onto the maternal figure through years and years of horror movies. And I think it's almost subverts it. Oh, it definitely is. And it's, it's so good. So good. I mean, you also have that idea of like of stalkers, these stalker women like Alex Forrest and Fatal Attraction believe that's the bunny boiler or is that single white female? I can never keep it straight. Annie Wilkes in Misery. Okay, that's Kathy Bates at her finest. Very Poor James Caan. Poor true. James Caan. He <laughs> always has terrible things done to him. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of his shtick. And then you have one of the original female stalkers who probably like laid the groundwork for all of this is a character named Evelyn Draper, who was featured in the movie Play Misty for Me, which is a Clint Eastwood movie. And she's stalking motherfucking Clint Eastwood. Badass. It's serious. He will, I mean, he's scary. He talks to chairs. That is scary. I mean, I think of just the depiction of women in slasher flicks and exploitation films like we talked about on the Snuff Films episode. Right. Okay. So let's go back to Japan. Let's go. Do, 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 do. Okay. So we're there. In my kayak. That's what it says on Google. If you say, like, directions to Japan, it's like, 
drive to California and get in your kayak. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're gonna be we're gonna run for sushi. Be right back. Okay, 1970s Japan about movies. Are we gonna talk about Godzilla? Zilla, Zilla, Zilla. No. During the American occupation, there was very little direct censorship because there was supposed to be a democratization of the press. Correct. Free speech was supposed to be kind of a thing. Yeah, we do that sometimes. It was in theory, but it really what they were saying is like we're not going to censor you. The Japanese people can still censor you, but in theory, say whatever you want. So when they left, there was the establishment of a sort of Japanese haze code. And haze code was Hollywood movie code, which had specific moral statute. Ah, morals. Moral In the 50s. fiber things. And so the Japanese version of this evolved over time. But it was supposed to be mostly self-enforced by the producers. As was the haze code. Right. And it went well for a while in America. It never really got on the ground in Japan. People were releasing pretty racy things. And there were things like strip films, which were films of stripping. Nudie cuties. Nudie cuties, literally, were, you know, kind of being passed around. They were independently made, independently released, independently shown. So there was really not a lot of, nobody wanted to take the time to censor it or to, like, approve it. And they didn't have the money to get these kind of films in front of people. And all, you know, they just mess. It was a mess. But... Mid-1950s, mid to late 1950s, people started to worry about... Moral fiber. Moral fiber. And moral fiber for whom? The Utes. The Utes. So we had to get on this shit. We had to, you know, get it under control. The tenets were revised and updated. And sex and nudity were kind of specifically discussed in the actual document for the first time. One thing that specifically mentioned was... In particular, take care with the following categories. Naked bodies, removing clothing, exposing the body, dances based on these, full nudity, mixed bathing, genitalia, and acts of excretion. But in addition, there is a separate memo. And this memo detailed the committee's consensus about how these regulations should be applied. Number one, no depiction of genitalia or pubic hair. So pixelate it? Well, this is 1959. I don't think they had pixels. I don't know. They were Japanese. They probably had pixels. It's big in Japan. Pixels are big in Japan. No. Is that your band name? No. Is your band the Pixels? Are they a Pixies cover band? Yes. No, they're not. But no, I'm saying that their technology was more advanced. It's a joke. I'm making a counter joke. Number two, avoid full shots of completely naked bodies that show the sex act. Number three, avoid any pumping motion that includes lower bodies. Oh my. So we could pump our upper bodies. Sure, all you want. No depiction of things clearly associated with ejaculation. Avoid persistent genital petting, including, for example, fellatio and hand entanglements either inside or on top of underwear. Oh my. As much as possible, avoid repetitive dialogue, groans, etc. during orgasm. So any repetitive dialogue. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Anything. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Anything at all. Anything, 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 anything. Yes. Yes. 
under these tight restrictions, this kind of counterculture, independent movement began to grow up called Pink Films. For some reason, pink and eroticism have always been linked together in Japan. There's much writing on it. Pink was code for erotic. So in the 1970s, the Pink Films which were kind of softcore sex film, romance porn, which were commercially accessible, sort of begin to incorporate more and more violence. So Ken does the same thing that the exploitation films are doing at the same time in the U.S. Right. And so those were called pinky violence films. So did they cut off people's pinkies? No, that's the Yakuza, but not specifically. They began to incorporate themes of like girl bosses, which were names for young female juvenile delinquents female Yakuza films or prison films. And they had these sort of, I mean, think Uma Thurman, Kill Bill. You know, it's definitely a take on this idea. This sort of stoic, badass, tough girl, central character. And they would have that kind of somber leading lady set against, you know, gratuitous nudity and lots of very violent graphic action. And so these women kind of formed a really tangible counterpoint to that sort of submissive, stereotypical woman that had been portrayed in media for years and years and years. And these movies kind of seem to prove, according to one article I read, seem to prove that the quickest path to female empowerment is paved with misogyny and bloodshed. Uh, Of course it did. (laughs) And this sort of started becoming a real phenomenon in 1962 with the release of the film Market of Flesh. But, you know, these films had titles like Attack the girl, woman assaulted. In the early days, a lot of very visceral violence toward women. They dealt with themes of rape and incest and, you know, for being forced to do sex work to survive, like really dirty, gritty topics. But they were very much kept away from children. Police would raid theaters and go in to make sure no one under 18 was in the audience. There was a really high level of social demand to keep these away from kids. They stopped running ads for the movies and newspapers because kids could see newspapers. So they became very forbidden fruit. The films were deemed harmful. They were said to impede development. There was a massive outcry from people to keep the children safe. And as time went on, these restrictions loosened. And by the 1970s, you have this very dual idea of violence and sex being portrayed in mass media and these systems to protect the children have eroded and become outdated and forgive my pun but the cat is out of the bag and this is the same time that our idea of the kujisaka ona comes out right this violent sexual being coming for your children when you can't protect them. You know, this idea of the monstrous feminine has been around for so, so long. It changes so much with time because in each different time and each different social structure, it's going to represent the different concerns. And taboos. And taboos are definitely always because the woman is the taboo. Right. My little taboo. Oh. But, you know, we've talked about lots of female monsters in past episodes. Absolutely. Like, I'm quite fond of them, in fact. Like, like La Llorona. So La Llorona is the weeping woman, and she is uh, supposedly a fallen woman who either drowned her children in grief or had her children drown and now wanders the earth drowning children and weeping. Yeah, and she's kind of this idea of the bad mother figure. She subverts the virgin whore dichotomy. 
Yeah, I mean, go listen to the episode we did on La Llorona. We mispronounced the name the whole time, but it's still a good episode. Then we also talked about Lilith and the idea of succubi. In the sleep paralysis episode, you have it slumbered here. That very much looks at feminine sexuality, especially used as a weapon. And there's so many other great female monsters or monstrous feminine <laughs> throughout cultures, such as in Slavic folklore, you have Lady Midday, and she can appear as many things, often a young woman dressed in white, and she appears, yes. Midday. 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 She'll come and she'll talk to workers and she'll ask them difficult questions. Hmm. And if they answer the question the wrong way, she will eat them. Behead them. Close. With a scythe or shears. And she can also be seen as a personification of heat stroke. I think that's interesting. Kind of and day. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like, it's a very yokai-esque idea, right? Exactly. Like the explanation for this physical phenomenon. And in Indonesia, you have the idea of the Pandianic, who is a pale-skinned woman with long black hair, red eyes, and a white dress, sometimes smeared in blood. Oh, that's that's an interesting take on it. Yeah, she's usually a very beautiful woman. I think Alexander McQueen would design for her. She died in childbirth and became the undead. And she lives in a banana tree. And she oh. scares people. She lives in a tree full of penises. Oh, I didn't think of that. And she scares people and then rips out their internal organs with their claws. I've also heard she'll rip off penises with her claws. Right. If a man wronged her during her life, she'll rip off their penis and... Hanging on a banana tree. She won't. I'm joking. <laughs> she will. She, she will. might. But not in their story. In my story, she does. <laughs> An interesting idea is to fend her off. You would need to plunge a nail into the hole on the nape of her neck. And if you do this, she turns into a beautiful woman and a good wife. Okay. Yeah. Right. Because we've got to manage that shit. Keep it locked down. She's a huge threat, so... Clearly, we just need to turn her into a wifey. Exactly. Mm. And then, of course, it also talks about those fears of childbirth and dying in childbirth. In the Caribbean, you have a creature called the Sukiyon, and she appears as a reclusive old woman by day. But she's made a pact with the devil, yeah. the demon, yeah. etc. Old women are usually cool with the devil. They usually eat people, too. She's going to eat some people, but she's going to eat some people. Oh, yeah. And so at night, she strips off her wrinkled skin and hides it. She could hide it, like, in a mortar or in a tree or something like that. Then she turns into her true form, which is this vampiric creature that travels like a fireball across the dark skies in the night. So, you know, you can look out your window when you're in Trinidad and see this fireball go across and be like, oh, it's the Sukuyang. So you can enter the home of a victim through any sized hole. So you like smoke through a keyhole kind exactly. of thing. Exactly. And she sucks people's blood from their arms, legs, or soft parts. Mm. You can think of any other soft mm. parts? Yeah. And leaves them black and blue. And she can also... Turn into all sorts of things in some stories, and she could even trade that blood with the devil. Like the blood she sucked out of other people? Yeah. Or to Basil, the demon who resides in the silk cotton trees, for dark magic, evil magic. Just like the succubus or other female vampires, she is coming and 
using her mouth full of sharp teeth (laughs) to either drain the life force out of people. So sometimes she can suck too much blood and people can just be covered in bruises and have this kind of thousand yard stare. And so that idea of the woman being able to suck suck the life force out of a man. Uh, Yeah. 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 There's a, there's a, there's quite a few of the ladies who supposedly do that. Big on sucking life force out of people. But the idea of the mouth is sort of a, a dangerous object. It's very present with a slit mouth woman. Right, that's what makes her different than everyone else. Otherwise, she looks like a normal girl. Well, I think that this college student who was interviewed in 79 has some really salient points to make about her mouth. He says, The mouth of the slit mouth woman is genital-like. And what's more... It's ridiculously huge and gaudy and unclean, so I do not want to be touched by it. This kid's got problems. <laughs> Does he, or is he just picking up on what's already there? I'm going to go with both. So several academics claim that she is a monster of the female genitalia. It's a true monstrous feminine. Right? Foster says, The relevance of this motif, the clean white cotton gauze of the mask covering a hidden slit, and simultaneously, desire and fear associated with seeing what is normally concealed does not take a great stretch of the imagination. So we're going to ask you to take a tiny stretch of the imagination. And agree that there's a vagina on her face. It's a face vagina. So now that we've done that to you. Oh, you just wait. And interestingly, as long as we're talking about the mask and the thin layer of white clean gauze... Between the slit and the world, let's take a moment to discuss that masking was associated with the women's liberation movement in Japan. It was first associated with student movements in the 1960s and would have easily and quickly, especially in the pages of the women's magazines, identified her as a subversive figure or a figure of resistance. There were many images of women wearing masks and holding placards. But there was also a transition at this time away from the more activist, you know, street protest bra burning yeah squaring yeah broads broads did you just say broads no don't i didn't say that don't do that i didn't say that okay there was a transition away from that kind of activism to a more like women's studies idea this more theoretical feminism there was the kind of longing for the activist and this worry that the work they'd done would be forgotten i mean this is similar to the western experience as well but she serves as this reminder to women of like what they were doing previously, of what had been done because of that mask that links her to that movement. So you see these key elements like the gender and sex, which is represented by the mouth. Mouth. You're right. Mouth vagina. Mouth vagina. And then sort of a burgeoning a consciousness of a normalized aesthetic or a standard of beauty. Am I pretty? Mm-hmm. And resistance. So the mask they're wearing. Right. And that's sort of part and parcel of the experience of that movement, the women's liberation movement at this time. And she became kind of this idea of covert visibility. She embodies that idea by reminding us of both that movement and those ideals, as well as the idea that we're putting sex and gender on display in a public forum. Right. It's there. And it's hidden, but we don't necessarily want to talk about it. There's no right way to talk about it. You can't answer correctly. There is no right answer. No proper way. Well, like, am I pretty? Yes. Even like this, I'm going to cut you up, bitch. Or no, I'm going to cut you up, bitch. And I think it's interesting that 
a big element of the story is the revelation. Mm-hmm. The revelation of the slut. Right. And one thing that Foster talks about that I really liked was this idea that she typically says even like this when she reveals her disfigurement. But he says it doesn't take much of a stretch, again, of the imagination to imagine her saying even this. And so you're playing on that idea of like, I want to see, I desire it, I find you beautiful. And then this revelation of this kind of monstrous sexuality of this visible misplaced sex organ that's obviously a product of trauma. And so it's this very violent repulsion that can be easily associated with it. She's showing us her vagina mouth and she's showing her vagina mouth to children. It's hard not to imagine like a gender reversal and be like, if this was a guy, oh my God, it'd be a crazy flasher. Yeah. Like if, if some guy was coming up and showing you his really long nose flasher for certain but she's actually kind of doing something else what's that i would argue creating horror in order to create boundaries participating in this really old sort of magic idea this epitropaic effect that nakedness was once believed to have so what is epitropaic it's got a protective quality um and it sort of repels enemies and one way that we see this played out is this idea of this anisirma which is the lifting of the skirt. And it's an act of exhibition with an outward purpose. And it's done to affect the onlooker. It's not done for like the gratification of the person doing it. So very different from flashing. It's not a sexual component. Like it's not done to turn someone on. Like it's not like somebody just wants to show you their junk and gets off on it. Like they're not lifting their skirt to titillate, titillate. you. No, it, you, it's generally perceived as having like a very outwardly targeted effect. And so some examples of how this concept, this construct was used in the ancient world is described by Pliny the Elder. Good old Pliny. Man, that must have just sat down writing about whatever came into his head. He was the original blogger every day. Every day. He wrote that a menstruating woman who displays her body could scare away hell, storms, whirlwinds, and lightning. And if she strips naked and walks around the field, pests will fall from the crops. And if she's not menstruating and she lifts her skirt, she can just calm sea storms. You're useful. Right? In the Balkans, women would raise their skirts in order to make the rain go away when it had been raining too much. In Nigeria, is still used to curse people. The logic behind it is that women can give life, therefore they can take away life. It can be deadly, this curse of this woman stripping naked. And if a man's been cursed, no one will have any contact with him in this fashion. And in Catalonia, there was a proverb that said, the sea calms down if it sees a woman's cunt. Stitch that on a pillow. <laughs> you think I won't? And in China, it was stated that women had the right to stop war by the custom of that time, the two sides had to stop fighting if a woman on either side waves her skirt and calls for an armistice. And in 16th century France, you have the Rabelais recounting of a popular story, so kind of a folk story of the time, about a woman who scared the devil away. How'd you do that? She showed him her lady parts. Oh my. And the devil was like, holy shit, I'm out of here. And then in like kind of the Greco-Roman tradition, you have... Images of the Gorgon bearing their vulvas, sticking out their tongues. And they were usually depicted on armor and shields in this fashion. And they, you would also see them 
on the fronts of chariots with their legs spread. So these women were winning battles and fighting demons with their vaginas. That makes it sound like they're doing something with them. They're just showing them. I would rather think that they're like shooting laser beams out of their <laughs> vaginas. Like, this is a new Demon Hunter show. We could have like on Cinemax or something. I have a terrible joke. I see your face. I'm very concerned. <laughs> Muffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> and of course, you have traditions like the Delukai or the Shilana Gig, which are actually etched into stone. In various places, like above doorways and that sort of thing. So you have that very literal idea of that apotropaic magic. Big, scary vulvas. Right. And the Dulukai are in Micronesia and Sheila Giggs are in Ireland. So this is very much a worldwide phenomenon. So what was George O'Keefe doing? Looking at flowers. Oh, they're just flowers. They're flowers. In mountain valleys. Flowers. Mountain valleys. Okay. Whatever you say, boss. What else would it be? I don't understand. So we can see that ladies sort of had this magical mystery box that scared the shit out of everybody. Why the hell were people so afraid of vulvas? Because they weren't penises. Duh. Is this a trick question? Like, no, that is not an answer. Well, Freud says. Oh, no, it's going to have to be an answer now. Freud talks a lot about castration anxiety. That's right, he does. That's right, he does. So children, especially little boys, are born believing everyone has a penis. Which is probably true. That's probably the one true element of this. Okay. And when they learn that not everyone has a penis. They they freak the fuck out. Yeah, so like someone cut it off. Oh my god. Okay. So they just presume that their mother... Zimazun has been mutilated and had her penis ripped off or torn off by one of these evil creatures we've talked about. It's usually the father. No, it is. And that their penis is in danger. <laughs> oh, God. Interesting element of this is that they're not worried about it from seeing like little girls with without penises or anything like that because they just assume that theirs just hasn't grown in yet because, you know, they're they're growers, not showers. Again, he must have just written down everything that came into his head. He and Pliny would have been BFFs. They would have sent the best letter. And so, of course, women are expected to accept their castration. Few ever really fight against this idea. Right. So they're just like, oh, well, I guess mine was cut off. That's cool. And this has played out the same time as our Oedipal Complex that we have talked plenty about. The mother complex. Mm, The mother of all complexes. So this repression of this anxiety, this anxiety of castration, leads to a fear of, really it could be anything, any kind of imaginary fear, but especially of being devoured, bitten, or other animal phobias, assuming animals that will come up and bite your penis off, I guess. Oh my god. Penis fish. If Freud had known about the penis fish of the Amazon. A kangaroo, that's real. He would never have slept again. He would never have slept again. Do you think Pliny would have written letters and been like, so I believe the the vagina, especially if it's menstruating, has the power to calm lightning storms. And Freud's like, why aren't you afraid of losing your penis? What's wrong with you? You have all of the problems. Do you think he would have like diagnosed Pliny as being like pathological because he thought the vagina had magical healing powers? He'd probably been like, we need to analyze your dreams. 
So if you take this idea that you could have like this castration anxiety and, and even a castrating mother, such as would be seen with someone like a slit mouth woman, she you know, she invokes that intimate connection between desire and disgust. Mm. Again, we have that sexuality. In theory, most straight men would like a vagina, right? <laughs> To have one of your own or to have one, like, to play with? <laughs> to play with. I love okay. that. Yes. I, like, that's the I don't think Freud term. ever wrote, <laughs> wrote about men wishing they had vaginas. Not in that way. Okay. We stepped out of the box on that one. But then, like, you know, you have that idea of the monstrous feminine mm. that we separate ourselves from. So, you know, with the slip mouth woman, she has her knife, etc., that can be used to mutilate somebody that can be seen as her trying to castrate castrate somebody. Right. And so you have this conflation of the desirable, which is the vagina that you would like to have pleasure from. That's a better term. <laughs> and then you also have the castrating vagina or the vagina that threatens to engulf, consume and castrate or that has been mutilated. Right. And so Joseph Campbell says that the motif occurring in primitive mythology is known in folklore as the vagina that castrates are the vagina dentata. What? It's very common. So. What's a vagina dentata? A vagina dentata is a vagina with teeth. Vagina dentata. What a wonderful phrase. No, no, no. Vagina dentata. No. Ain't no passing grace. Well, it's not, because it is very common. It means all the worries. Okay. <laughs> For the rest I'll Stop of you days. right there, Pumbaa. I am to moan. <laughs> I take offense. So, vagina with teeth. Yes. Tell me more. The vagina with teeth, the vagina dentata, has been around in mythology forever. Okay. It is as long as people have known about vaginas, they've thought there were probably teeth in there. Yes, they really have. No, I was kidding. They're fairly ancient, but they are found in lots of societies and so folklore. Maybe not. I mean, they're pretty ancient, but there's also the ubiquity of them. Right. They're just everywhere. They're everywhere. And <laughs> teeth everywhere. Teeth and vaginas everywhere. <laughs> and let's start with Japan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in Japan, there is a festival called the Kanemara Matsuri, and that's the festival of the steel phallus. That's not a vagina with teeth. Well, there is a legend that a jealous, sharp-toothed demon hid inside the vagina of a young woman. Well, that was not nice. Yes. Well, the demon had fallen in love with her, and I guess she did, just did not like this one. So he hid in there and bit off the penises of men that tried to copulate with her. So that seems problematic. After this happened, the woman sought help from a local blacksmith who fashioned an iron phallus to break the demon's teeth. And so she was able to use this to rid herself of her toothy demon vagina demon. I believe, and I'm going to cite a very highbrow film here, so just brace yourself. I believe that's called a pussy troll. You're right. Pillow pants is the technical term. I've seen clerks too. Yes, I, I, know think, I think Kevin Smith did really deep research to come up with that. <laughs> he even traveled to Japan. This iron... Fa- Not on Southwest. <laughs> so there is a shrine where the iron phallus is 
enshrined. <laughs> and they have this annual festival and everything is decorated with penis. Does it look like a bachelorette party? Like just vomited everywhere. Yes, it's it's hilarious. I highly recommend you Google it. And Native America, and really in North America and South America, it's a very pervasive idea. So one Apache tale titled, Coyote Makes Woman Valuable While Breaking the Teeth in Her Vagina. Well, that's a mouthful. Or a vagina full. Okay, now. Reel it in. Reel it in. This is not a family show. Uh, so there's a lot of versions of the story. This is one I found in like a, a compilation of Apache tales. It's probably the least lurid form I found. Oh. So Coyote meets this beautiful woman. And he's like, girl, you fine. Mm-hmm. Why don't we do it in the road? And whenever they are about to... Do it in the road. Have sex. Why are we whispering? You have to whisper sex. Sex, okay. He sees teeth in her vagina. Well, good thing he noticed. Yes. He goes, oh shit. And so he grabs a stick. Mm. And inserts the stick. Mm. And it is gnawed up. <laughs> and so Coyote, being a smart trickster, grabs some stones and inserts stones until he breaks all of the teeth. And then he... Has sex. He fucks her. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's actually what the legend says, no, right? Like, that's yeah, in the text. Yeah. I wish. Um, oh, no, the one I heard. It was like, Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> then after, the woman says, Hereafter, I shall be worth a lot. I am worth horses and many things now. Your face. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problematic interpretation of a woman's worth, isn't it? A little. Okay. So in South America, one survey done of 71 tribal societies folklore found that all but 14 had female genitalia associated with injury and danger, such as biting, snapping mouths, sharp scissors, or jagged clamp traps. And one tribe's word for a vagina literally means crocodile's mouth. Hey, one Cajun French word means snapping turtle. Did you know that? No, no, I didn't. And to tie it even more in with like the mouth, the Yanomami tribe, the Amazonian tribe, you have the same word for eating and for having sex. And the word for pregnant means fully fed. It's not a mouth. It's not a mouth. Well. It's not. So another great idea of the vagina tata is in the Maori tradition. Mm-hmm. And this is the god Maui. Maui decides that he is going to make mankind immortal. Good for him. And he's, he's kind of the trickster god in this pantheon. Always and he is, going, he is going to go to the goddess of death and gatekeeper of the underworld. He is going to, he is going to trick her into making men immortal. Good job. And so he goes to his father, and his father tells him, Her mouth is that of a barracuda, and in the place where men enter her, she has sharp teeth of obsidian and greenstone. He decides that he is going to kill her and make men immortal by entering her vagina and exiting through her mouth. That's backwards. He's reversing the order. And so he finds the great goddess sleeping with her legs apart. Lucky break! Such that they can clearly see... Those flints that were set between her thighs. So he transforms himself into a caterpillar, but he's brought some bird companions along with him. 
bad call. They're going to eat him. Because they think, no. They oh. think this is so ridiculous that they start laughing and making noise. And they wake her up. And she is angry and crushes him with her teeth. Which eh. which ones? The vagina dentata. Oh, okay. So Maui becomes the first man to die and seals the fate of all humankind who were ever destined to die and be welcomed into the underworld. So we all die because vaginas? Because of vagina dentata. It's amazing that they, they let us out in the world now. It really is. It's not a mouth. There are no teeth. Well. <sighs> no, Jacob. No well. No well. Well. There is no such thing as a giant dentata, but there is something called a teratoma. Which is a mythical deity. No. Okay. So it means monstrous growth. <laughs> it's a true medical term, and it can grow anywhere in the body, but frequently is an ovarian cyst, like a dermoid cyst. And within it, you can find lots of different things, including teeth. Teeth. No. Teeth. Inside the tumor was my twin. Not the same. Okay. Well, of course, this is not the reason that the story of the vagina dentata exists. It definitely could be something that helped reinforce the idea. No vagina dentata. So this legend, especially looked from his Freudian standpoint, I mean, it talks about males' fears of castration. I think amputation is a better word than castration, but I'm going to say that like out loud to Freud, and I'm not correcting you. Like it's, I'm it's, just using his terminology. I know. I just, I think it's so weird. That's the word. But okay, so we we legitimize so much shit by having and perpetuating these kind of myths. It's just amazing, and maybe it does tap into some kind of primordial fear. Well, with this, I mean, it's also talking about what we have to do to women to tame them. We got to break those teeth out. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's one Hopi legend I read that focuses on the vagina dentata phenomena, and it talks about these men who came upon a group of women who were the personification of belladonna or nightshade. They had vagina dentata. So the men were smart, and they used wooden phalluses to copulate with them instead of sacrificing their members. Eventually, once all the teeth were broken, they began to fuck them, the legend says. And they would switch out between their own penises and their wooden penises until they had fucked all the girls to death. And then they all went home merrily declaring what a great time they'd had. Fantastic. But I just, like, oh my god, this is just such deep, misogynistic, paternalistic bullshit. Like, it's so hard to talk about in the way that I like to talk about legends because I can just see how this legitimizes violence against women, how this makes men the conquering heroes, how it gives them something to fear and... And also something to defeat. <sighs> and to, you know, like, so to be the conquering hero. It's so problematic. I appreciate the tradition. I appreciate the history. And I appreciate having this reference for why the world is the way it is at this time. But I just don't want it to be that way. Right, so through these ideas of vagina dentata, it just ties so clearly back into our main story. You know, the slit-mouthed woman, who, as we've discussed, very much represents women's fears and ideas, and also man's fears associated with women. I think she's a very dynamic character, because I think she, in a way, 
subverts this tradition. But she's actively engaging in this discourse, and she's not passive. She's concealing a really long tradition of violent associations with women and their strangeness. She is concealing a tradition of the violence that those traditions and that dialogue and discourse have legitimized for centuries and generations. She is the face of everything that society projects onto women and what they do to themselves and what they do to others as a result of the pressures and contradictions that they are bombarded with daily. She is a face of what we ask of women. Am I pretty? Am I pretty is a loaded question. It's a question that's so charged with so many meanings. It is desire. It is repulsion. It is demand and discipline. It's now I'm really worth something. It's hard for me to talk about. It's just so clear how deep and how long these traditions of being fearful of women and just seeing how it plays into the conditions that women have to live with even today. And I don't want that to be our story. And maybe she changes it a little. Maybe she's an active agent who can subvert those traditions. I guess maybe that's not just a story. I hope it's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.